Well, hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the TCVC podcast. I have to admit the frequency has wavered a bit over the last few weeks thanks to my other commitments at work. But we are going to be back up and running with a new episode every week going forward. And I'm super pumped about it. So thank you all for your continued support and patience along the way. As you all know, the new format, I usually kick things off by introducing a couple of startups in the Desi Startups of the Week segment. So for this week, I'd like to give a shout out to two startups, Foodwalas and Elo. Well, who doesn't love good food, right? So Foodwalas is a gourmet food delivery startup that lets mom and pop stores to reach big national audiences. Learn more about them at www.foodwalas.com. That's foodwalas.com. The second startup we have is Elo, a vernacular audio streaming app. Think YouTube for audio. Their app is available on the Google App Store, so do check them out or visit eloapp.in. That's www.eloapp.in. Now, on to this week's episode. Well, I'm super thrilled to welcome Srikant Sundarajan to the podcast. He's the general partner at Venture East, an India-focused fund which helps technology startups looking to go global from India across segments such as education, health, financial services, agri-tech, enterprise SaaS, and so on. Srikant has over 25 years of experience in software product development and services, having worked at HP in Formix in the US, and he was also part of the executive leadership team at HCL and was the worldwide CTO at Cognizant. In the US, he had also successfully founded his own startup, Pretzel Logic Software Inc., which was acquired by BEA spin-off WebGain. BEA was later acquired by Oracle as well. He was also part of the founding team at IDS, which was also acquired. So clearly, he has solid experience in running startups and exiting them as a founder. I'm very excited to talk to him about his journey as an entrepreneur and as an investor, having been in the space over the last five to seven years. Let's head in and listen to Srikant and everything that he has to offer from his experience as a venture capitalist. Welcome to the podcast, Srikanth. It's wonderful to have you on the show. And before we begin the episode, I'd like to give a shout out to Nina Justin for setting this up. So thank you, Nina. This couldn't have been possible without you. Well, now that we have that out of the way, how are you doing, Srikanth? I'm doing good. Wonderful. I typically start most of my episodes by asking my guests about the last six months and how it's really been for them. So I want to understand how the last six months been for you and the firm and what can you share with us about some of your learnings by speaking to your LPs or even some of your portfolio companies and fellow colleagues in the industry? So the way I look at it, there are two, two dimensions, uh, Akash. Uh, the first dimension is basically whether you are a B2B business or a B2C business. Our B2B businesses are typically global and pretty much online. So they've actually been doing fairly well uh, from that perspective. Uh, the B2C businesses uh, have actually taken a small hit, especially if you look at FinTech, uh, when you talk about lending, um, 
that's been a sector which has actually got hammered a little bit. Uh, but like what we've done um, is actually gone through our portfolio and made sure that they have actually um, taken in financing luckily uh, last year and also helped them shore up uh, enough um, capital so that like they can actually kind of extend their runway. So all of them are looking fairly good and they're all um, kind of at least achieving positive momentum. Uh, this is with respect to our current fund. So sectors that we look at are fintech, uh, edtech, okay, uh, f uh, and then of course uh, we have uh, uh, healthcare. Uh, these are all segments that have been doing fairly well. That's great to hear that certain sectors have done really well. And in terms of the portfolio, what were the initial conversations that you were having with them in the months of? March and maybe April, when it was just the beginning of the lockdown in most countries, including India. And how did those conversations kind of evolve towards the later months? So uh, all of us were taken by surprise because initially, at least as far as India was concerned, and perhaps the rest of the world, it was uh, basically not taken very seriously. And uh, once uh, it dawned on us, uh, probably not so much in March also, but probably April, May, uh, we realized that um, we had to actually kind of dig deep down and figure out uh, how to actually come out of uh, this crisis. But the interesting thing was uh, because we were primarily digital, um, there was a need from both the customer side which is in some cases businesses, in some cases end consumers, that we actually tried to actually make sure that like their experience was good. And uh, that has happened. We also ensured that like, if there was any shortcoming in terms of financing, which is very, very critical in this uh, juncture, uh, we ensured that we actually uh, got them the right assistance uh, and also got them to think about uh, not spending too much on uh, basically what was the norm before all of this happened, because the norm is going to change. And that I think uh, all, all the startups have espoused. They have basically said that uh, this is how uh, tomorrow is going to be. So we have to actually cater to consumer needs, which are going to change and going to actually, some of it is going to remain, right? It's not going to go away. And uh, this is different from a typical financial crisis where uh, the economy slows down and comes back up. Here, uh, it's gonna impact uh, a lot of behavior, buying behavior from customers, be it businesses or end consumers. So I think uh, a lot of thought has gone in there. I'm not saying that this uh, work is over. I'm not also saying that like uh, this phase is over because uh, there's not much end in sight right now until the vaccine comes, but I still feel uh, that uh, behavior in terms of buying, in terms of decision-making, in terms of uh, how consumers react, how customers react, which is businesses, will change. And a lot of it is gonna be done online. So we are taking measures and, and this is a constant dialogue that happens between us as investors and entrepreneurs. And, and uh, both sides have realized it. I mean, this is a partnership for the long haul. That's a wonderful point that you made because you've, you've seen the macroeconomic impacts of COVID-19 and it's kind of played out in very 
unconventional and conventional ways, if you can think about it and compare it to some of the previous epidemics that we've, that we've kind of like had in the past. Now, I have a bunch of follow-up questions that I'd like to get into, but before we do that, let's briefly discuss your background. You know, how did you end up where you are? What, what's your story? Did you always know you wanted to be in venture capital? Could you briefly share your journey with us? No, I'm a random guy. I mean, if you've read the book, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, that's basically been uh, something I followed all my life. I went to IIT. Uh, after IIT, ended up in the US, did my MS, PhD from University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. Um, kind of worked with some great guys, uh, did some uh, cutting edge uh, work, uh, both at UIUC as well as HP in the early days and informics. And then uh, uh, decided to do my own startup, which was an interesting journey. Without VC funding early on, it actually took off, bootstrapping and doing some interesting work along the way. And uh, then ended up doing that company, which went uh, through ups and downs, did fairly well. And eventually I was lucky to exit out of there, then decided to come, come back to India because parents were growing old. I thought I, I needed to spend more time in India. I also had some personal challenges uh, because of my second child who basically had a mishap when he was 18 months at Stanford University Hospital. And he's still with us, he's a paraplegic and uh, worked for H. Uh, HCL in very senior roles, uh, Cognizant's first CTO worldwide, then got bored of large companies, did another startup, which I was lucky to exit, then joined Persistent very early on, um, and then during the Series A raise, and uh, saw that company grow from revenues in the $30 million to about $250 million, went IPO, uh, which was very, very satisfying. Then, then decided to make use of my PhD and uh, set up uh, IIT Bhubaneswar's computer science program with a whole bunch of my uh, ex-classmates who were profs by then. And uh, by the way, I was also teaching in the US, so it actually helped. And then um, around 2013, I decided that basically I'm, I'm a startup guy, so I can't keep doing startups. So decided to actually start to invest in small ways. So I was uh, a venture partner with Helion uh, for three years. Uh, then obviously been doing angel investments and I'm a general partner with uh, Venturi. So that's, that's my background. That's a wonderful background and uh, there are a bunch of things in there that we can perhaps even get into and, and find out about how that kind of experience is kind of coming into hand right now. Let me start there. What I think, or what in your opinion, has been the biggest learning experience of your career that you're currently utilizing right now? I think the biggest learning experience is always to kind of work with some really great guys. I had the good fortune of uh, working on Mozilla uh, when I was at UIUC, worked on the RPC stack. Uh, Mozilla is basically the first browser, by the way. Um, where I was actually working on the HTML parser. Now it's like ubiquitous uh, RPC, which is basically the um, one of the foundations of um, inter-process communications. Now we call it web services, all that kind of good stuff. You have JSON, 
uh, worked on a product called ClearCase, which was basically one of the leading DevOps platforms of its times. Worked on something called Remedy as part of the early initiatives. Worked on uh, HP's uh, first uh, C++ compiler and the IDE with a very, very smart bunch of people. Um, basically, I, I mean, in, in some ways, I was very lucky to actually work with some immensely talented people. Uh, so for me, life is a continuous learning. There's not one particular event, but I think my first startup taught me a lot because I made a lot of mistakes. I mean, uh, I didn't know what uh, being a PhD in, in computer science and being a techie, I didn't even know how to manage my own PNL. And uh, there's one particular incident that um, stands out. One day when I went to kind of pay a check to a vendor, uh, I discovered my bank balance was zero. And I discovered that uh, Wells Fargo, I mean, God bless them, they had actually offered me a payroll outsourcing solution. And by mistake, they had actually paid everyone 3x their salary. And uh, luckily, everyone was in, in Wells Fargo, so we were able to actually kind of get the money back. But uh, that's how naive I was. I mean, and uh, I mean, uh, that, that's when I learned the importance of uh, managing your cash. Uh, that's very important uh, for a startup. And um, uh, no matter how much money you actually kind of raise, it's important to make sure that your basics are right. You're actually going in the right direction. It doesn't matter. Sometimes it might be slow. You may get buffeted by a lot of things, right? You may also get actually distracted. But like, I think that was, I think, uh, a very key, key moment uh, of learning. So that actually helps me quite a bit, even now. That's nice. I mean, we've, we've kind of like heard this multiple times come out from people, right? Majority of PhDs will never cross the gap between working for other people and working for themselves. But we've seen in the last few years that entrepreneurship in general is rare, but becoming an entrepreneur after completing a PhD is also very exceptional. And you can see that the skill sets that you either develop or you, you, you hone along the way of your PhD kind of also comes very naturally to entrepreneurs. That is either gathering evidence or data after like rigorous research and experimentation, responding to experimental feedback, identifying trends and outliers, optimize and innovate systems, managing and mul managing multiple projects at the same time. So all of these kind of become very synonymous traits of an entrepreneur, him, himself or herself as well. So PhDs somehow know how to navigate the uncertainty, even if it means fumbling around in the dark, blindly looking for clues. So would you say that kind of happened to you as well? I think it, it is very important because uh, there are two sides to a PhD. One is uh, basically, you think you're going to do something really good. And the other, other negative side, I mean, which I've been through is basically you have to, you're doing it alone, right? It's almost like playing golf, right? You're playing something against yourself. And uh, this is very similar to what uh, CEOs feel at times because they, they do feel that loneliness because you have to take the decision, you have to kind of move forward and you have to kind of backtrack. Uh, many a time and and that's basically what happens when you're doing research also uh, sometimes you luck out sometimes you don't okay and um, i mean there are great great people i know i mean who actually have phds and have done immensely well okay whether you like it or not i think uh, you have bill joy uh, um, i mean despite all all the dropout stories you have bill joy whom i 
respect immensely. You have Ashish Gupta, uh, who's got a PhD from Stanford. You have um, uh, Anandesh Pandey, PhD. Um, you have, uh, I, I'm not really sure if uh, Desh Desh Pandey has a PhD or not, but like, I think he was, uh, he's pretty much up there. I mean, there, there are a number of people who actually kind of, and especially in, if you look at the pharma industry, if you look at uh, essentially hardcore uh, engineering industries, you'll find some phenomenal people. I mean, uh, in many ways, I mean, I look up to say someone like uh, Richard Feynman. Um, I mean, phenomenal mind. Uh, I look up to Edsger Dijkstra, phenomenal mind. Um, Donald Knuth. I mean, all of these people have actually spawned a lot of entrepreneurs or entrepreneurships um, inadvertently or advertently, I don't know. But like, uh, I, I think it's, uh, it's not a negative, um, but I think uh, you'll probably find more non-PhDs and a lot more MBAs and a lot more uh, McKinsey types uh, who've actually been more successful, I would say. I completely agree with that. Even, you know, with the likes of Google, AMD, uh, you can take Intel, VMware, Akamai, all of them were founded by founders who had a PhD. So it's, it's definitely a sign that um, it's also a myth where a lot of people feel PhDs cannot go on and found successful companies. So um, that's, those are some great points and great names that you dropped. Now, so, so there, there is one, one uh, uh, humorous anecdote I'll drop. I also mm-hmm. founded the Cricket Club of Illinois when I was at UIUC. Because I'm I'm a reasonably good cricket player. Nice. <laughs> and I played I played with Azuruddin and all that when I was in school, and uh, so we used to be called the Docs Eleven because uh, UIUC had a whole bunch of grad students. Either the guys were doing a PhD or an MS, and uh, we were I I think the most academically qualified cricket team. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's wonderful. Did you guys win anything at the end? Yeah, yeah, we we won the first uh, championship, and uh, we still uh, kind of take pride in that. All of us, we're still in touch. <laughs> nice, that's amazing. I mean, it's good to see um, cricket still living on for a long time after people come, expats come over here to the US and stuff. Uh, I myself represent Union City Cricket Club here in the Bay Area, and we play first division cricket. So yeah, yeah. you can, so you was, can uh, perhaps uh, leave. You can leave India, but you can't really leave cricket as such. So here's something, I mean, uh, sorry to interrupt. I was the uh, president of the Northern California Cricket Association. Nice. And uh, did score a lot of runs, especially against the Caribbean cricket cricket team, uh, because they used to bowl a lot of shot bouncers, man. So you used Mm -hmm. to kind of whack quite a bit on on them AstroTurf wickets (laughs) in Northern California. Well, it's it's great fun to play, especially when the summer seasons kick in. Unfortunately, this year, the season's obviously delayed because of COVID. But we're all looking forward to when the season kicks back up, maybe sometime next year. But uh, as somebody who's been playing for a year and a half, I can tell you that it's great fun to continue playing cricket, uh, even after you've left India. So ask me when I stopped. I, I don't think you'll stopped. Look by going by the look of it. <laughs> no, I stopped. I stopped when some I was chasing a ball and someone ran past me really quickly, picked up the ball and threw it back. And I said, like, where are you from? He says, India. Where are you from? Uh, uh, Berkeley. Uh, when did you come here? Last year. 
uh, where do you play cricket? I didn't even ask. I said, okay, time, time to retire. Because uh, <laughs> this was when I was probably 42 and this kid would have been 21 mm-hmm. or 22. So you had to be beaten by somebody's agility to realize that your time is, your time is now up. Yes, but not, not uh, vis-a-vis startups. <laughs> right. <laughs> that actually is a good segue into uh, your time over at uh, Orange East. Now, I'd like to understand one. I mean, you guys have been around for, for a long time, founded in 97. You have about 400 million plus of AUM. Um, this is your sixth fund. Talk to us a little more about what really attracted you to Venture East and and then we can perhaps get into some of the existing pieces that you have. But let's start there. You were with Helium and then you perhaps could have chosen from a bunch of VC firms to end up joining. What made you want to join Venture East and what about the firm that really stood out to you when you were thinking about the next chapter in your career? So there are two things. Uh, number one, um, it's obviously uh, an age and comfort factor. So if you look at like Venture East, uh, it's been founded by folks who are my seniors from high school, as well as IIT Madras, and people I've been in touch with for the last like 15, 20 years. So that's very important. So that chemistry gets right, right? If it's not right, um, I mean, because it's a small team, you have to understand, uh, it's almost like a, a f- small family, right? Uh, you have to understand each other and make sure that like everyone's aligned because you have a bunch of LPs supporting you and uh, there has to be this thesis and you have to complement each other in some ways and you have to support each other in some ways. So that's what attracted me to Venturies. I think Helion had similar kind of uh, uh, attributes to it. Uh, unfortunately, they decided not to actually move forward. So we had to all kind of find different paths. But where I was, uh, I actually uh, would not have actually gone through the process of actually starting a new fund and doing things myself. And it so happened that like um, uh, Sharath and Raghu and Sid, who are founders of the fund, basically talked to me and said like, hey, um, this is good. We kind of want someone with your background and known them. And so that was a primal attraction to begin with. The second thing was uh, when I looked at what they had done over the last uh, 15, 20 years, they were always attempting to do something cutting edge. I mean, typically a lot of um, VCs would do a follow up funding or um, that kind of a thesis, which is okay. I mean, I don't have a problem with that, but they were always trying to do something which was very different. I mean, good or bad, okay, because uh, in the VC world, it is um, high risk, high reward to some extent. And it's also uh, basically kind of uh, sticking it through the thick and thin for a number of years and having a bunch of LP relationships which are valued. So all of those actually uh, were really good as far as I was concerned. And uh, what I brought to the table was the fact that I've always been a techie, I love, love enterprise tech products, SaaS, etc. And that's where the world was headed, uh, at least in the India context, which was good. And the fact that I knew them from before actually helped. So I think this is very important if you're coming into a firm uh, when you are, are a senior person. If you are a, 
uh, someone wanting to be in the VC world and you want to enter, then I think there are a number of wonderful firms in India as well as in the US where you can actually start. But like, um, I wasn't there, right? I wasn't like a 25-year-old person or 30-year-old person who had just done a startup. So that's basically uh, uh, my rationale. Thank you for that. Now, what is the thesis that we have, you have ongoing at Venture East and what are you personally bullish on? What are you working on and what kind of startups would you like to see going forward as well? Okay, so I'll break it up into two parts. Uh, one of the main reasons I, I joined them was because from a software product, uh, enterprise tech SaaS perspective, um, there was a vacuum. So I actually stepped in to fill that. And I'm glad to say that we are contributing to that in many ways, whether it be India-based platform plays with a lot of technology, AI, machine learning, deep tech, uh, we are helping with that. And then we have a number of enterprise tech SaaS plays, which we've actually in invested in, which are doing fairly well. So um, those are things. If you look at a macro thesis, what um, VentureEast uh, focuses on is basically serving the underserved, which is how do you actually kind of uh, create um, enterprises that serve the underserved? For example, we have um, um, lending platforms, we have essentially rural e-commerce, we have healthcare, we have education, we have, name it. I mean, um, and of course, enterprise tech SaaS, uh, plays focused on the SMEs, local to global. So these are all uh, very interesting plays. And that's going to be our thesis uh, going forward. And uh, in a strange way, we are also impact oriented because some of our investments do touch upon um, what I call second tier, third tier uh, cities. For example, there's a wonderful investment that we have called Indus OS, uh, which is actually going to do uh, more and more wonderful things as India becomes more Indian vis-a-vis, uh, -vis, I mean, all the other external kind of factors. Uh, you may want to check that out at some point. You may want to check out Ekin Care, which is in healthcare. You may want to check out iNurture, which is online, offline, um, next generation, cutting edge degree programs. I'm talking about degree. I'm not talking about certifications or test preps, etc. I'm talking about uh, Kisht, which allows you to actually kind of uh, buy stuff when you are unbanked, right? Uh, so a number of uh, interesting plays out there. We, I'm talking about ACO, which talks about digital insurance, which is basically what, what we call micro insurance and how do you kind of uh, provide that for health, life, as well as auto. So, and all of this requires a lot of uh, data precision, AI, machine learning. So, that is basically what is exciting. Now, to answer your second part, second part is um, very intriguing because I'm, I've been actually studying how the entire enterprise tech SaaS may actually evolve into platform plays which have, which will actually consumerize the enterprise, right? For example, uh, with COVID, with the fact that we want to be more digital, with the fact that we want to be much more caring for our customers through through digital means, you will see a lot more AR, VR, AI, machine learning in terms of interaction, multimodal interactions with customers. Um, uh, th that is going to happen. You'll, you'll see a lot more technology entering healthcare in terms of 
remote care, in terms of non-invasive care, in terms of AI machine learning to kind of do early diagnosis. All that is uh, phenomenally exciting. With 5G coming in, you will actually see a bunch of things happening in manufacturing, Ford Auto, industrial, Ford Auto, whatever people call it. But uh, in terms of automation, in terms of um, uh, diagnosis uh, for maintenance, et cetera, because these things are expensive, you will see that. I mean, good examples are infinite uptime. Good examples, uh, when you talk about oil and natural gas, are companies like Detect Technologies, uh, companies like Futura, all of these are coming out of India. Uh, Agritech, you will see a lot more things happening in terms of technology actually going to help people out. Companies like Fussel will do well. Companies like Cell Labs when it comes to dairy production and quality. So I, I, I see a very different world out there with uh, a lot more technology, a uh, lot less uh, manual intervention. I mean, you can't do away with manual intervention, but like, I think it's exciting times and it's going to be very impactful uh, overall. Now, there's a lot to pick from that uh, answer that you just gave, Shikan. So let me start with the uh, enterprise side of um, things. Now, historically speaking, India has not been known to be um, a, a massive player in that space. What have you seen change in perhaps the time that you've been with Venture East and what, how much op optimism does that give you about the next five to 10 years of India being a massive player in this market? So number one, you got to understand. I mean, I think uh, if you solve for India, you solve for the world in, in some segments. Uh, one is logistics because India logistics is very, very difficult. Uh, just giving you an example, right? But if you solve for accounting, it may not be, right? Uh, mm -hmm. So for example, uh, accounting has always been there and tally has always been there. So if you come up with yet another accounting package, maybe it's tough. But Zoho has proven us wrong. If you come up with a help desk product like Freshdesk, which is actually moving into Freshworks, I mean, good examples. Uh, they've raised a ton of money and, and they're doing well. So if, if I just write down a few things, right now. Uh, I will kind of put Zoho aside, I'll put Tally aside because uh, they, they, are, um, they started a little earlier and they have very different ethoses and, and they're doing very well because both of them are, uh, have not taken in any external funding and, and that's a huge, huge statement, okay? Fresh desk, okay? Uh, they came up with basically a more efficient way to actually uh, provide support services for for the industry, especially the enterprises, uh, SMEs, done phenomenally well. If you look at like uh, the SME segment for HR tech, you have Darwin Box, um, you have Edge Networks from our side, which is both um, enterprise and SME for talent optimization. If you look at um, uh, hardcore tech, you have um, Postman, which is done phenomenally well. I mean, I was involved in the early stages, talking to Abhina, Vastana, uh, helping him out. I mean, I'm very, very proud uh, of that, of the fact that they are actually a, a unicorn and actually done it purely on tech. If you look at Innovacer, uh, that's another enterprise SaaS play where I was involved very early on. They've done phenomenally well. If you look at calm.io, they got acquired by um, uh, kind of, um, 
basically it's a, a, one of the leading DevOps plays, right? And then there was Minjar. Then, uh, I mean, recently uh, there's Hasura.io, which is doing fairly well with, with their uh, GraphQL and um, microservices kind of stack. Um, there was obviously Dhruva, which I missed out earlier. So I think it's, it's, it's all good. I mean, and I'm actually writing this whole history where I feel um, the next three, four years, five years is going to be really good for India because people are starting to actually feel comfortable, right? And a uh, lot of interesting small startups doing very, very cool cutting edge stuff, be it DevOps, be it the dev stack, be it essentially solving um, uh, very interesting disruptive pieces of how businesses should be run tomorrow, um, leveraging data, um, kind of optimal workflows, uh, better user interactions, or I, I call it multimodal interactions with the end customers. So I think it's going to happen. I mean, whether you like it or not, but I feel very bullish. I mean, this is a good time. Let, let, let's take an example here. Now, if you have a cohort of customers that kind of pay you anywhere between say a 10 to 15K a year for your enterprise SaaS product, you're going to find a customer that self-selects and is willing to pay 100K a year. Yep. Now, once you have one of those customers, your company will figure out how you sell to and how you satisfy and support customers at that price point and at that stage. Now, it's really hard for companies that sell up market to move down market. And as you go down market at a low price point, you usually can't support it. So when you're a startup or when you're a company, to do a go-to market, if they're a new startup is, is fairly simpler than if you're a pre-existing company and a, and, and a player in the market. Have you seen that sort of play out even in India where it's, it's easier for startups to really disrupt the market than an, an incumbent to really bring about that change? So India is a very difficult market to sell, um, Akash. And uh, that's why I think India is a good learning ground um, because uh, enterprises, for whatever reason, right, do not like to spend money and they nickel and dime everyone. We have a company like Seclore, which has actually had like a couple of premium customers in India uh, who have actually kind of asked for a lot of customizations and people get stuck, right? And uh, so if someone else comes with a disruptive product, yes, it's going to be easier. But the point is uh, they need to scale. Uh, if you're actually just focusing on price wars, it's not going to work. Uh, because, I mean, there's this old saying that faster, cheaper, better is good, right? But uh, you can only do two things at a time. Because you can okay. either be faster, better, you can be faster, cheaper, right? Mm -hmm. Right. So one of the two combinations, if you try to do all the three, then you're sub-optimizing your business because it doesn't work that way. Yeah. So what you're, what you're saying is very true. Like people kind of establish some kind of a beachhead momentum. They get to like $1 million ARR, $5 million ARR, $10 million ARR. And they, they kind of struggle. So they have to keep on innovating. Mm -hmm. And a good example of innovation is actually both Zendesk and Freshdesk because they keep on offering more and more to their customer. I mean, I'm not going back to Zoho. Zoho has done a splendid job there. But, uh, and then there's the other, other model, which is uh, Tally, which says like, I don't care. I own 60% of the market. I'm just going to keep on doing this better and better, right? So those are the two things, right? But Zoho is a global player now, okay? And uh, they're probably worth a few billion dollars. 
um, uh, I mean, I don't even want to actually go there, but like, uh, so it'll be difficult for someone to come in and dislodge Soho, right? I mean, mm-hmm. if you were to kind of offer something cheap, but if you were just a one trick pony, right? You're just doing one thing and you reached about $5 million, $7 million, and you went up the value chain, as you were saying, from 20K per year customers to 100K customers and focused on that. Uh, chances are that uh, someone will come and disrupt your market, for sure. Right. So you're absolutely right. So they have to keep on innovating and they have to not forget that there is uh, that um, core customer base that supported them in the early days. So how do you actually segment your offering, make sure that they are happy while you grow with better offerings for people who are willing to pay more. So this is a journey, okay? And uh, people who actually crack it do well. You can actually crack it with uh, more horizontal offerings or you can actually crack it with more deeper offerings. But that depends on uh, the insightfulness of... uh, uh, the core uh, execution team or executive team, and of course the investor, right? Because you got to actually have both of them working hand in hand. No, I completely agree with that. If you have a great product and you have uh, people who are choosing to use it, it's very, very difficult for somebody with a sales-driven motion and all the cost that's loaded into it to be able to compete against it. And, yep. uh, you know, there are so many markets that were, that when you take a look at it, you could perhaps say, oh, well, this could, you could possibly sell this to anybody except the CIOs or the CSOs or the CFOs, because it's kind of like a very bottom up sort of approach that people take. But in almost every case, we have been wrong. And then there, yep. there has been a bottom up motion that's kind of like worked out. Slack is a great example. Dropbox and Box, both were great examples uh, at the very beginning. So, so actually what tends to happen is if you don't innovate, you stagnate. If you stagnate, right. there's going to be someone else who's going to come in, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's obvious. I mean, and, and uh, typically what tends to happen is um, there are two, three things, right? Which uh, gets you to this point. One is basically founder fatigue. Mm-hmm. The second thing is you've gone uh, IPO, you've succeeded, you've reached a particular stage, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, the original enthusiasm in the core team probably is not there and it's kind of checking along in its own motion. So you're not actually innovating, right? And right. so you, it tends to happen. Cisco is a great example, right? They've innovated a lot by doing a lot of acquisitions. Mm-hmm. Nothing wrong with that, right? Nothing wrong with that. But I'm just saying for India-based companies, I think the point that you made, um, see $5 million AR, $10 million AR is nothing. Right. You have to actually establish yourselves. Um, I mean, take a look at like Salesforce, take a look at Workday, get deep pockets, get people who stick with you, right? Mm-hmm. And that's a different journey when you talk about enterprise SaaS. When you talk about horizontal technology plays, like for example, WhatsApp is a good example. I won't kind of allude to Facebook, but like, let's take Google, right? These were horizontal technology kind of plays which actually got one kind of mooring, which actually fed a lot of virality, right? Mm-hmm. Hotmail is a classic example from the 1990s, right? Right. Eyeballs, people actually using it, great, right? And today, if I look at uh, uh, an example, it'll be Zoom. Fine, people might say it's not secure, and we might actually ding it, but like, it's great, okay? Uh, from a user it interface, it's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. it's the 285th 
communication software. I mean, you have a bunch of things like WebEx and GoToMeeting and, and uh, I mean, uh, whatever, Skype, et cetera, come along. But like Zoom has done well. Right. Why? Why has it done well? I mean, why has WhatsApp done well? I mean, um, if you look at like uh, BlackBerry, they had their IM, which was even superior to WhatsApp, but like they stopped for whatever reason. Why did this thing happen to Nokia? They had a great OS, they didn't open it up like Android. So I'm just saying that there's a bunch of decisions that are made, which actually can be backwards at times, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's, that, that kind of like actually brings me to a very interesting point since we're talking about Zoom. You know, we've seen a lot more people move away from a traditional work model into people who started working remote because of the pandemic. Does yeah. this shift really mean that on-premise software is dying and it is accelerating a move towards software as a service? Are we all heading towards that kind of a future? And you feel that it's kind of like, you know, bundling is perhaps going to make everything a little more interesting going forward. And that is perhaps the most important shift that's going to occur in the industry has already started occurring in the industry, which began a few years ago, but the pandemic has kind of like accelerated that going forward. And also the fact that on-premise software is dying. What do you think about that? So I, I will offer you two things. Software as a service has already exi uh, has existed for some time, right? What I feel is going to happen tomorrow is interaction as a service, embedding workflow as a service. So essentially, it's going to be a digital world. And you're going to be transacting a bunch of things, either with bots or with people, everything online, uh, aided by AI, machine learning, and security. Uh, does that answer your question? It does, but what does that really mean for the future of, of, of the industry as such? So people have to write software to, uh, to kind of enable that, right? For example, I want to check up on my policy when is my next payment happening? Can I encash certain bits of it? Today, how do you do it? It's uh, quite an arduous process. It's not mm -hmm. that straightforward. So if I actually kind of get a bunch of things answered, uh, everything is uh, facilitated online, I'm satisfied, it's secure, I'll do it, right? Mm -hmm. um, same thing about basically saying that, hey, I'm following up, these are my meds, uh, uh, I don't feel comfortable, and you want to actually kind of give them a slightly different pres prescription, but you don't want a full consult session, right? It mm -hmm. can be actually presented to the physician or doctor and they can actually enable that. And it's all done on the, under the auspices of essentially a PPO or whatever uh, the insurance provider network is, right? right? So I'm saying things are going to change. I mean, uh, it's, your customers are going to basically be virtual. Your workflows are going to be actually virtual uh, with interactions and the interactions can happen from anywhere, but it has to be secure, as I told you. Mm -hmm. uh, you may actually run an entire oil rig uh, with a very skeletal team, which is 10% of what you had before uh, with sensors and things like that. 
So the, this is how the world is going to change. And this is how the next generation software um, folks have to adapt and put out offerings because the traditional industries are not going to adapt that quickly. Mm-hmm. I'm just talking about things like, okay, why hasn't blockchain happened? Why ha- haven't smart contracts happened? Uh, it'll happen now. It'll happen now because people have to collaborate. They have to come together online. Right. Now, so, the other thing that also, in my opinion, changes a lot of things from uh, the industry perspective is usually after like a crisis like this, um, you know, there's this, the, the software spend declines about 20% during an economic downturn. We saw that happen in 2008 and then way back in 2001 as well. And which basically means that software vendors are now forced to change their go-to-market to actually suit those use cases. And if that's the case, then the user behavior changes. It's tended to be the catalyzing force behind these bigger market changes and also go-to-market strategies. So do you also agree or see or maybe even foresee for SaaS because the world has changed to a new reality now that there'll be more remote and distributed teams going forward? Does that really change the way that we also build software going forward? Yes. That's exactly what my point was earlier, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Akash, what I was saying was the way you need to write software will change. You'll have to rely on AR, VR, bots, AI, machine learning data. Mm-hmm. to essentially fill void so that you're actually interacting with people who are remote. Yeah. You're actually interacting with, with the back office, which also may be spread out. Yet the efficiency needs to improve, security needs to improve, right? Mm-hmm. So for example, I need the latest view on my policy. When is it going to be checked out? It should come back immediately as opposed to me walking down to a local office and figuring it out or kind of going to some site and uh, trying to download something which was basically scanned, uh, which has uh, a very poor kind of readability. All all those things will change and they right. should change. Now, that's a wonderful point that you make there as well, because you're going to find out which SaaS products are absolutely essential to helping businesses operate and run. And ones which are nice to have, which may not get renewed. And that kind of also is a good indicator of where the industry is headed towards and what kind of technologies will survive. And what kind of technologies yeah. might perhaps become obsolete? Yeah, absolutely. Just take a hospital, for example, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I envision uh, that most of the regular monitoring that's done for patients and, and stuff is basically going to be uh, done through robots, okay? With very little manual intervention. Mm-hmm. Uh, monitoring especially is going to be a lot more precise than someone actually walking around with a clipboard in their hand, right? And interpreting charts. Uh, devices that are produced for ICUs or um, hospitals in general are going to get smarter um, and they're going to be secure. So I'm just, I'm, I'm just thinking that the world is going to be different. It's, it's basically going to be permanently changed, whether you like it or not. Right. No, that's, that, these are some wonderful points that you made. And it kind of takes me back to uh, something that you previously said as well. You also spoke about different tiers within India and how that kind of creates opportunities. I want to ask you, going back to that earlier point, what's the fundamental difference between investing in tier one cities compared to tier two and tier three? It could be enterprise SaaS, could be uh, consumer products, could be anything, right? But from a general perspective, let's talk about what are the fundamental changes and what have you been observing while you've been making investments in both? 
So actually, uh, when I talk about tier one, tier two, tier three, uh, I allude to only consumers, right? Because when you talk about SMEs, uh, SME segments and things like that, mm -hmm. I look at them in a, in a very different dimension because they're helping businesses. Businesses could be anywhere, whether you're a large software uh, provider to help people with accounting or basically an SME product, right? Uh, so if I look at tier one, tier two, tier three, I think the opportunity starts to grow in tier two, tier three sit kind of environments because you have consumers, be it in agriculture, be it in financing, be it in uh, rural assist commerce, be it in education, be, be it in healthcare, right? Good examples are Docs app, which basically has gone into tier two, tier three cities to help actually help doctor consults because of distance getting experts to kind of uh, do reviews, right? So you'll have a lot more of those things. Now, is it a true um, B2C play? Probably not. It has to be done through a B2B2C kind of an outreach because um, you'll have to do a hub and spoke because you can't go to all the spoke elements. Right. But um, that's what I see evolving, right? And those are very interesting opportunities to invest because number one, there's impact. Number two, there is volume, because uh, if you look at like uh, just the consumers in the top, uh, I would say just take Flipkart, Amazon customers in the top tier one, maybe tier two cities, they'd probably be about 25 billion customers, right? And um, if you look at like basically tier three and rural, you might get a number close to about 100, 150 mil, right? Uh, the price points may be lower, but like there are good opportunities if you are looking at it from an investor trying to actually kind of build size and scale as well as impact. So that's where I'm coming from, right? So it could be even if you look at alternate energy uh, in terms of actually ensuring a village is self-sufficient, how do you kind of do that in, in such a way that it actually becomes uh, commercially viable? It could be essentially helping the small farmer, okay, uh, trying to improve his yield. I mean, these agriculture bills are good, which have been passed recently. Uh, hopefully it's implemented well, which is basically always a question mark, at least as far as India is concerned. So, so that's what uh, I, I think rural assist commerce, like people want to buy refrigerators, they want to buy telephones, they want to actually buy kitchen appliances. Can they get it financed and buy it from uh, well-known brands in smaller villages. Yes, uh, can they get financing for certain types of equipment, be it of, for their farming or other needs? So these are these are very interesting kind of segments. It's uh, very different from your classic uh, uh, Amazons or Flipkarts um, doing e-commerce, or even, for example, uh, Quicker mm -hmm. uh, or uh, any of those uh, those kind of plays. It's also very, very different from uh, targeted marketing. Like for example, White Hat Junior in EdTech uh, basically taught uh, kids how to program, but like uh, the average fee is like $2,000, $2,500 or so per year. That cannot be afforded by uh, someone in rural India or two or three cities, right? Right. So how do you, how do you ensure that like uh, they're still coming up to speed? Can you actually enable them in different ways? So there, there are a number of interesting possibilities. Mm -hmm. Now, these are actually tier two and tier three cities emerging uh, also as business pivots, opening up eccentric opportunity, job opportunities for a lot of people. 
um, you know, we talk about some of the macroeconomic trends as well. And then you see the rise in rents across cities. All of these are kind of like also driving people away from these uh, so-called uh, markets that are being saturated. And yeah. in comparison, startups that find these initial costs are much more lower, skilled personnel are more affordable. Local authorities are a lot more friendlier in tier two and tier three cities. And that kind of helps create those newer opportunities, I guess, for some of these companies, especially in tier two India. And, and the lower cost of living also brings down the overall cost of running the business, which is extremely important for early stage companies. Well, actually, let, let's take Zoho and Sridhar Vembu, right? I mean, mm-hmm. what has he done? He's actually kind of created such a fantastic ecosystem by actually going back to rural routes and actually setting up uh, development uh, engineering centers there. He actually helps schools. It's become a nice feeder system for him where he actually educates people, gets them to go to college and they come in and work. And if they work closer to home, they're going to remain closer to home, right? Mm-hmm. And their standard of living improves. So, I mean, these closed loop ecosystems are great, great opportunities. I mean, and, and they can actually kind of be the wheels to funding some really, really great um enterprises right mm-hmm. uh, the only issue that we have is we get divided by politics we get divided by a whole bunch of other issues um, which will take a little bit of time but i think there are lots of people there's another good example of a company called rare earth which is actually helping artisans lalten is another uh, wonderful startup which is helping artisans across rural india mm-hmm. because they were getting exploited Bunch, bunch of good, good opportunities, which actually scale up to being fairly large. Right. Uh, I'm just talking about even healthcare. I mean, like for example, simple healthcare. I mean, uh, uh, there is uh, money being spent, but it's b- being spent uselessly. Why can't it be actually kind of diverted? And and I'm sure, like, the affordability with the insurance plans that the government is providing is there, but like it never reaches, uh, or it's never put to good use. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. The efficiency is fairly low, right? So what is more attractive to you, Shikant? Is it a, is there a startup that's focused on tier two and tier three markets or a startup from tier two and tier three market that is perhaps maybe or may not be uh, targeting the tier two, tier three markets? So if you, if you ask me where my heart lies, my heart lies with like hardcore tech companies which they're mm-hmm. going to change what's going to happen. So it's basically either an enterprise tech SaaS or horizontal technology. So good examples are companies like Zoho, right? Or a fresh desk or Drova or Mo Engage, which is one of our companies, right? These are companies which uh, had humble beginnings and, and are doing phenomenally well, Hasura.io. Mm-hmm. Or if you, if you look at um, uh, companies uh, which, which are impactful uh, from perspective than e-kincare docs app these are companies that i look at um actually i'm agnostic to where where the idea comes from as long as the idea is good uh whether it comes from a, a tier two tier three environment or does it if it comes from a tier one environment whether it comes from a bunch of iid guys or it comes from um some good um solid kind of entrepreneurial thinking from any college in india I mean, that's what attracts me. I mean, the passion, the idea, and let's just go get it done. So it's very, very difficult for me to kind of categorize it as 
ideas coming from tier two, tier three cities or ideas emanating from tier one cities um, going after tier two, tier three cities. Ideally, if, if it's a tier two, tier three problem to be solved, I would prefer it to come from a tier two, tier three environment as right. opposed to a tier one environment, right? right. Um, so that's like logical, but like uh, if it's a techie problem to be solved, it's mm. actually a global problem. Well, that's why I like that. And uh, in many ways, I liken India to being a tier three kind of techie play today. Uh, but I hope it becomes a tier two, tier three very soon. What about deep tech? How or do you really feel India has the potential to be a massive player in this in this space? Because we have not seen any massive big big companies that have really emerged in the last five or six years in the deep tech space as such. It's still a very nascent industry if you think about it at scale uh, globally, but India has not really, you know, thrown some really good names out there. What's, what, what's really stopping us and what's perhaps got to be done to change that? So there are two or three things. Um, I think uh, the whole ecosystem has to work a lot closer together, which is uh, the government, uh, academia, um, basically the investors, uh, the industry, and the investor. All these five things have to kind of come together. So if you go to the Valley, you'll find all of it working together very seamlessly. If you go to Austin, you'll see the same thing. If you go to Seattle, you'll see the same thing. Go to Boston, you'll see the same thing. Go to Israel, you'll see the same thing. You'll see it to a lesser degree in Europe and UK, right? But that is a very, very key integral part of uh, the whole thing actually working. And... uh, Different parts are working in different places, but like uh, not to the level that uh, we expect to see. The second thing um, is that we as uh, people are impatient. People forget that venture capitalism started in in the US. I mean, the kind of venture capitalism that we know, it always existed before because capitalism was always a focus. Started in the late 1960s, right? So it's close to about 55, 60 years old. India, probably it started, I would say, in, uh, really in 2008. So it's like just 10 or 12 years old, right? And uh, to basically expect the same kind of results is, is not fair, right? Having said that, we've actually produced 21 unicorns if you, if you take value or market value as a measure, which is not bad. And uh, obviously, I don't like volume numbers, but like we are there. Uh, so if you ask me, can we actually create something which is deep tech, which will do really well? My answer is yes. A qualified yes. And my answer is also yes. Uh, and in lines with what you are asking, it's not going to happen in the next few years. It's going to happen in about a decade or a decade and a half because a lot of things have to move. As I said, like the industry has to move. The customers have to move. Academia has to move. Government has to move. Investors have to move and it has to be backed consistently. Every time there's a change and the change in policy and a bunch of other things, it is actually not very good. No, those are great points that you made. That kind of is a great segue into my last uh, uh, segment, which is a rapid fire, where I'm going to shoot some questions at you and get some quick answers from your side. So if you're ready, we'll delve into that. Sure. Which firms today in India, outside of your own, impress you the most? And I'm not talking about the usual suspects here. Yeah, so if I would actually kind of uh, 
take enterprise, enterprise tech, enterprise SaaS, I would say uh, Freshworks, uh, previously known as Freshdesk, impresses me a lot. Uh, obviously, I al already mentioned Zoho um, earlier. Uh, I like essentially Postman and Hasra.io. They're, they're going to do really well in the future. Mm -hmm. uh, we have Watfix, which is another nice enterprise um, SaaS app. Um, we have like Darwin Box, which is also doing fairly well. Uh, so these these are some some really good good names in the enterprise SaaS play, which which I feel are going to actually make a global mark. That's good. And none of them and none of them are our investments. Okay, that's perfect. Now, if you were to start all over again, would you want to be a founder or a VC? I've always been a founder at heart, uh, Akash. I've been a founder and I like teaching, okay? Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing is um, in the VC world, you end up actually being a voyeuristic founder and you end up being somewhat of a teacher, right? So actually, uh, it's, uh, call it accidental or call it natural, uh, it's actually led me to that. And I, I feel being an entrepreneur actually helps me a lot more in terms of empathizing with the founders because uh, I've been through certain trials and tribulations that they actually go through. Mm -hmm. And uh, being a teacher actually uh, allows me to actually be more open to listening and also learn because sometimes you learn. That's great. Now, what is the hardest thing about being in venture capital? The hardest thing um, is basically making the transition to getting a lot of data and eventually having to say no or um, uh, saying that like this uh, will pass for now, right? Because uh, when I was running my own companies or I was uh, uh, basically uh, in senior management roles, uh, like a CEO, CEO, whatever, uh, you had very little data you had to execute, right? You had to keep moving forward. Here you have a lot of data, you spend a lot of time and sometimes you have to say no, even to very, very good players and good entrepreneurs. So that's actually, um, at least to someone like me, is a very, very difficult situation because I've been an entrepreneur and it does actually pull, tug at my heart. So let's put it. Perfect. That sounds good. Now, you did mention your anti-portfolio previously in one of the answers that you gave. What, in your opinion, are the, are the reasons or the top reasons why firms miss out on some exciting deals? Like, in, in hindsight, you can perhaps say these are some of the things, which is one of the reasons why I want to find out from your experience um, at Venture East, why do VCs miss out on deals? Well, actually, it's a part of the decision-making, right? You've got to understand that uh, there's a bunch of LPs, there's a bunch of partners, it is somewhat of a demo democratic uh, kind of process, right? And mm -hmm. you have to take in everyone's inputs and, and uh, sometimes it could be suboptimal in that context. Um, so, yeah. So during that course, you might take more time and you might actually lose deals. Right. Uh, so that is part of the process, uh, especially uh, depending on the firm. Now, if the firm is basically someone who does co-investments or does following, it becomes easier because you know two or three trusted people you follow and, and basically from a pure financial perspective, uh, you're actually hedging your bets. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. But if you're actually going to, going to do something fundamental and um, you have essentially a process, you follow process and sometimes you may get outvoted. Right. So that, that's what happens. That's great. And my last question to you is, what is your advice to founders who are building startups today in the enterprise SaaS space? I think it's a great time to kind of go back and re-examine your basics. Uh, you should understand the entire world is changing. Uh, it's going to be a lot more digital. It's, it'll, it's basically going to be multimodal. It'll, it'll require very, very different bottoms up thinking about how businesses are going to be run. It's a good opportunity because things are not going to happen very quickly. So I think uh, come up with some really int- interesting kind of technology plays, um, which will actually disrupt business. So I, I'm very, very optimistic and I want to encourage everyone, especially folks in India, thinking about enterprise SaaS plays that are local and global. That's a wonderful note to end the episode on Shrikan. This is wonderful. Thank you so much. This- full of insights, especially about the enterprise SaaS space. I would love to have you on sometime later as well and perhaps dig a little more deeper into some of the nuances that go into building businesses in this particular sector, especially considering the Indian context. Thank you, Akash. Uh, It was lovely speaking to you and look forward to continued interactions. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, there you have it. Another week. Another great guest sharing insights on a unique sector within the Indian VC tech landscape. Thanks again, Shrikant, for coming on the show. It was a delight hosting you. If you enjoyed that episode, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcasting platform because it really does help others discover the show as well and allows you to not miss out on any of our future episodes. Don't forget to check out Foodwalas, a gourmet food delivery startup that lets mom and pop stores reach big national audiences. Yummy food is always worth looking into, so do check it out, guys. And while you're waiting for your food to be delivered, download Elo, a vernacular audio streaming app that lets you consume content in your preferred language. You may check out the episode notes to learn more about these two startups and find the links to their websites. We'll be back again next week. And until then, stay safe, everyone, and keep hustling.